Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and as you know by now, this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group tonight. At present, we're building a campaign for Deadlands Classic, so if you're new to the podcast, you might want to dig out your Deadlands Classic books, head to your local used game bookstore, or head over to PEGINC.com to purchase PDFs of the materials we use in this show. And for the record, all you really need is a copy of the Player's Handbook and the Marshall's Guide. However, to this point, we have also utilized the City of Gloom supplement and the Smith and Robard supplement, which are also available at PEGINC.com. Okay, so I think I've sufficiently shilled for the company whose product we use in this show, and if we're being honest, aren't paying me for this, so let's move on. Then again, they haven't sent me a cease and desist letter, so I guess we're even. All right, before we start building new stuff today, you know what we have to do. We need to recap what we created last week. Last week's build began with our group finally getting Francis Colson alone and in their hands. Understanding that they had a limited amount of time to deal with him, they quickly decided whether to let him live or kill him. Pretty sure we both know what the group did, but I'm not going to pressure your group here. Before they did what they did, Colson would have tried to save his skin by telling the group that the attack on Triumph was actually ordered by Archibald Warren, who is a friend of Brigham Young and a high-ranking member of the Mormon Church. He also shared that the Muffin Man is working to organize all of the disputed territories into a nation that he could use to take on the United States and Confederate States, and he mentioned that the mayor of Denver, who is the banker, knows all about it. Finally, he notes that someone on the board took out a bounty on the group with the Texas Rangers for $5,000. So after this little bit of business had been taken care of, the group needed to get out of Salt Lake City as quickly as possible, and the quickest way out was the Idaho State Line. And riding was the only option because since they were wanted, trains and stagecoaches wouldn't be fast or anonymous enough. Once the group safely made it into Idaho, they made their next decision. If they were not working for O'Toole slash the banker slash the mayor of Denver, they could have gone back to Denver to kill him if they didn't already, then head to Little Rock and take on the Muffin Man, or they could have just gone to Little Rock, or they could head to Albuquerque and take on the Butcher. I know, that's a lot. Per our timeline, the group was working for O'Toole, so they returned to Denver. Skirting Utah Deseret due to their actions, it took about 20 days to return to Denver. Once they were there, they got word to Burt Norwood, who is O'Toole's right-hand man, to let them know they had finished the job. Also, if they tried to reach out to Teresa, they found out she is not in Denver. Norwood eventually meets with them, and he makes them another offer. He gives them three grand and a folder. O'Toole wants Ezekiel Monroe, a.k.a. the Muffin Man, killed. He also states that O'Toole will pay them another three grand upon successful completion of the mission. Norwood also notes that O'Toole will take care of any and all bounties, though he'll suggest they stay out of Utah slash Deseret for just a little bit. Yes, the group had a choice, but we're operating from the position that the group took the offer. We noted towards the end of the bill that the folder they were given has information on Monroe's estate, his workers, the protection he has, and names of some friendly observers around Little Rock that might be good sources of information. And that was where we ended the last session. As we begin building this week, let's first break down exactly what's in the folder the group got from Mr. Norwood. The first couple of sheets lay out what they've been able to accumulate about Monroe's estate. Called Bird's Haven Plantation, it's 1,500 acres located about five miles south of Little Rock. It's a legitimate business, growing wheat, corn, sorghum, and raising assorted cattle, hogs, and goats. It's also a thriving business, bringing in about $200,000 annually. Insofar as the layout, the main house, which is really big, sits in almost the exact center of the plantation, with the rest of the land basically sectioned out among the different productions. 
Each of those, we'll call them quadrants, has a barn on it. And there are also two other rather large two-story houses on the property as well, equidistant from the main house. One of those houses workers who moved to the area from out of state because Monroe used housing as one of the selling points when he recruited people from outside the state of Arkansas. The other house is a bit of a mystery. The sources are pretty sure there aren't any workers in there, but who exactly lives there is uncertain. Some sources theorize that some of the 40 to 50 armed men that patrol the plantation live there. Those men ride around the plantation all day long looking for trespassers. For the record, they aren't there to keep people in. They're there to keep people out, and every source that mentions them agrees with that. In fact, it's also noted that a great number of the field workers go armed as well, and there are a number of reports of them shooting trespassers on site. Let's talk about the workers for a minute. Monroe has well over 100 people working on the plantation. Most of them ride out from Little Rock every day to work their job, and they are very well compensated for their work, which means that the plantation has very little turnover. It's said there are at least a dozen or so workers that have been there since Monroe's father owned the ground, and he's been dead for nearly 20 years. The final sheet in the folder has a list of names and places they can be found. Archie Melvin, Post Office, Hazel Burkett, Ma's Home Cooking, Ace Williams, Port Saloon, Seamus O'Brien, Patrick O'Brien, Attorney at Law, Charlotte James, Southern Charm Inn, Mabel Ungar, fashionably early. There's also a name in quotation marks at the bottom of the list centered under the last line, Marcus. The group will most likely be curious about what the name Marcus means. Let them work it out among themselves. The truth is that Marcus is the code name they should be using when they approach any of the six name individuals for information. Now don't just give that to them, okay? If they can come up with it on their own or they can make target number eight rolls, knowledge roles maybe, okay, then give it to them. But don't just hand it to them on a platter. So with the information about the job sorted out, the group needs to get from Denver to Little Rock. They can go by train, by the way. The Black River Line runs directly from Denver to Little Rock. By train, they'll get to Little Rock in 39 hours and 10 minutes. If by chance they don't have the cash for a train, though they just got three grand, so they should, and they decide to ride there on horseback. At 50 miles a day, it will take them 15 and three quarter days to ride the 782 miles. Oh, and train tickets will cost $39.10 a piece. And yes, I did the actual math on that, so you can fact check me if you want. I did the math on the time and distance as well. If the group chooses to ride horses that way, have them run into a few groups of gunslingers looking to rob them. Run the encounters and give the group a white chip for each encounter settled. If they ride by train, they have a smooth, easy ride to Little Rock. Now, before we lay out Little Rock, I need to make a correction. In a previous episode, pretty sure last week, I think I referred to Arkansas being in the Confederate States of America. That would be because during the actual Civil War, it was. However, in Deadlands Classic, especially by the time we're entering the timeline, it's actually a part of the Union. So we're coming at things from a Northern perspective. Now, there is a supplement available for Deadlands Classic that covers the northern states, which in this case would be the majority of the USA. But even though I own it, I'm not going to use it for this part of the campaign, since I only anticipate our group being there through this particular scenario. However, if you're so inclined to do so, check it out at BEGINC.com, which is Pinnacle Entertainment's official website. Dang, these guys are getting a heck of a plug today. Maybe I need to reach out to somebody for a sponsorship. Anyway, we're going to build a basic outline of Little Rock on our own, using the approximate population of the city to determine what it would look like. Now, we're not going to get too specific, because our group shouldn't need too many amenities while they're in Little Rock. 
After all, they're in town for a very specific reason, and once they've accomplished the goal they're there for, it's back to the disputed territories. So I, I had to break out my Google Foo for this one, and my thanks to Scott, who is not only one of my best friends on planet Earth, but also one of the players in my game, for coming up with that term, or maybe stealing it from someplace. But anyway, in 1870, the population of Little Rock was about 12,000 people. By 1890, it had risen to 25,874. So what I did in a very unscientific manner was to subtract the 1870 population from the 1890 population and came up with a difference of 13,874. I then divided that by 20 since there were 20 years between the two census numbers. That gives us a number of 693.7, I rounded down to 693. Then I multiplied 693 by 6 because we're playing in the year 1876 and we wound up with 4,162. So, adding that to our 1870 population number, we're estimating the population of Little Rock in 1876 at 16,162, which means, all in all, that's a pretty decent-sized city. And yes, I realize that number is probably larger than the actual population was at the time, especially since I wasn't using a very scientific method to come up with the number. Sometimes in game creation, you just have to go with what you've got the ability to do, and I'm not an expert in population growth. Okay, so getting into our quick build of the city. With a population that large, we can assume that the city is unofficially comprised of higher class, middle class, and lower class, or poor, sections. That's something that pretty much holds true for major cities around the country today, so there's no reason to believe it was any different then. The higher class district will have a couple of hotels. Name them fancy names if you want, and note that the rate for a high class hotel is $10 per night per person, and that comes directly from the player's handbook. There will also be a higher class of tobacco shop, several saloons or taverns, a couple of really nice restaurants, a high-end tailor and or dressmaker, several stores catering to the high class, and probably a smallish gambling house, which can also serve drinks and or food. The houses in that end will also be larger and better looking, and this would be where most of the movers and shakers politically in the city would live. We should also note that the police presence here is very visible, with uniformed officers walking the beat and ensuring that the wealthy and powerful in the city don't have to deal with miscreants. Mabel Unger's shop, Fashionably Early, is located in this section, as she caters to the wealthier women in town. The middle class district will be the largest, since this is probably where a lot of the workers from the plantation live. They can afford it because, as we noted before, the pay is really good for the time and it buys loyalty and continued service. The rest of our contacts, minus the post office, will be in this section. There will also be two or three more hotels, plus a boarding house or two, and rates for the hotels would be five bucks a night per person, while the boarding houses run three dollars a night with meals included. Smallish restaurants, taverns, and saloons dot the district as well, and I'd argue there's probably a bar of some type on just about every corner. There are general stores here, as well as tobacco shops, tailors, gambling halls, and other enticing businesses. The police presence here isn't nearly as heavy as it is in the wealthy district. There are a few beat cops here, but it also takes a few minutes to get a response. And while they are interested in keeping the peace, they're also more willing to look the other way over what might be considered minor offenses. The poor district, while smaller than the other two, is very compact. You're, you're not going to find a lot of businesses here. There's probably one hotel with two bucks a night for lodging. It's fair to say there's probably also a boarding house or two, and they're not the best, but they do serve meals. There's also one or two restaurants, but their menus will be rather basic and cheap. Then again, cheap food doesn't necessarily mean bad food. Police presence in this area is basically nil. 
So long as nobody gets killed, cops don't make their presence felt here much. And even if they do, they're not typically too concerned about poor-on-poor crime. Now, I know I said divide the city into three districts, but we needed to carve out a piece at the northwestern portion of the city, which I would say takes a piece out of both the wealthy and middle-class districts. This is where the railroad passes by, so there's going to be a train station there, along with the post office, so that's where the group's last contact on the list will be. The stables and the blacksmith are going to also be here, and that's more because it's the outskirts of town, which means the smoke from his forges will blow away from the city rather than into it. The city hall and police station will also be here as it's sort of a de facto government district. Which means there are also officers patrolling the area frequently as well as guards hired by the rail line to keep the peace on railroad property. Oh, and if it comes up, stagecoaches also post up here since they tend to be wherever the main areas for transportation seem to be. Don't believe me? Head to the airport and tell me there aren't more taxis hanging out there than in any other single area of your city. I'll wait. And I know I didn't name a lot of the businesses here. That by design. For my group, they're probably going to be no nonsense about this and only go where they need to go in town. In that case, taking the time to fill out the town the way we did with Triumph would be a waste of time and energy that could be better used coming up with the rest of the scenario. However, if you've got a group that loves exploring every nook and cranny of the city, you might want to take the time to draw out the city on graph paper or whatever medium you use to make maps. One suggestion though, because I think it might save your sanity if you do this, run the streets north, south, and east, west. Most cities were initially laid out like this, unless you live in the northeastern part of the U.S. It was the fastest, easiest way to grid out a city for selling lots, so it was used frequently once the U.S. began to expand west. Okay, so with city design out of the way, let's get back to this week's exciting adventure. Our adventurers have arrived in Little Rock, having been tasked with eliminating one Ezekiel Monroe, a.k.a. the Muffin Man. Regardless of which mode of travel they chose, they will arrive in the city about noonish. The only difference is on what day. First thing they'll probably want to do is secure lodging and speak to the sources from their folder. So have them pick a hotel or boarding house off your list. For the sake of ease, let's just assume that wherever they want to stay, they've got enough rooms for all of the party. That's doubly true if they tend to double up in rooms to save money. Once that's done, if they want a meal or a drink before getting to work, let them do that. But I'd suggest to them, subtly if possible, they're probably going to need to get to it at some point. I'm not going to assume I know what order your group is going to want to hit up the contacts in, but it should be easily assumed they're going to want to hit the post office and the lawyer's office first as they'll be the first ones to close for the day. Otherwise, any order should work. I'm going to just lay them out in the order that I listed them earlier, so use them in whatever order your group chooses to go in. And for the record, none of the contacts will discuss anything with the group until or unless they use the Marcus name in some manner or fashion. If the group doesn't use it or hasn't figured it out, the contacts will speak about their business and the city itself, but they won't give any of the details they have about Monroe, the plantation, or anything they might need. All right, Archie Melvin. When the group arrives at the post office, Melvin is the only worker at the desk. He's a 30-something male, about as average looking as you can be, which means you would not take note of him if you saw him in a crowd of people. He's just one of those folks that just blends in. The only reason why he isn't blending in here is because he's the only one behind the counter and he's wearing a uniform. His info is that the plantation has been getting in crates from the Colt Manufacturing Company. He knows that pretty much the only thing Colt makes is weapons, and with the number of crates they've gotten in over the last few weeks, he's curious as to why a plantation owner needs that many weapons. He says he knows there were six crates for sure, 
But since Monroe had a man at the office to pick them up as soon as they arrived, he was unable to either fully count them or determine what was in them. He'll also note that he's seen some delivery men and women come through town the past couple of weeks headed for the plantation. So whatever's going on over there, they're doing it big. Hazel Burkett. She's an older woman. The group would guess between 40 and 50, but the truth is she's 65. Needless to say, she looks like she's aged well. She dresses very conservatively with long dresses with high collars. She has a nephew who works on the plantation, and she overheard him talking to his wife about some of the things he's seen going on there recently. It was noted that Mr. Monroe hasn't been seen outside in nearly a month, but everyone knows he's there because his personal carriage is still on site. What they have seen are more armed men around the main house. However, these aren't the armed guards that defend and protect the plantation. These men are dressed in some sort of uniform, which has a red and black color scheme. These men do not associate with any of the plantation guards and certainly won't give the field workers the time of day. Ace Williams, the owner of the port saloon, is also the bartender. A balding man, Ace is African-American and in his mid-40s. He is a veteran of the Civil War and is one of the few Civil War vets you've run into thus far who doesn't seem to have bad memories of the war. It's not that he necessarily enjoyed every minute of it. He just didn't have nearly as many horrific experiences. Being the bartender in a saloon, Ace hears a lot of things from a lot of people. From listening to the various workers at the plantation who drink at his bar, he's been able to piece together that the plantation isn't producing as much from its various crops over the past couple of years. However, it doesn't seem that Monroe is overly concerned about it, nor do any of his plantation managers seem to be very concerned. He also notes he's heard from other tavern owners in town that the plantation seems to keep making the same amounts of money year after year. So he's curious. How's that possible? Seamus O'Brien. While he's first-generation American, his Irish brogue is still rather thick. He's in his mid-twenties, trim and fit, with a big hair of red hair that seems to ignore all attempts at managing it. He has an interesting tale to tell. About four months ago, he was approached by Neil Shaughnessy. As a fellow Irishman, Neil believed he could trust Seamus with something serious. Neil reported to Seamus that he'd witnessed a few of Monroe's uniformed men, the ones who only seemed to guard the house, dragging a couple of dead bodies out the back of the house and loading them into a wagon. Neil wouldn't have thought anything about it, but he caught a glance at the bodies before they were loaded into the wagon and noticed they were wearing uniforms of the Union Army. Neil had remembered a couple of soldiers coming to the house earlier on the day in question, but he didn't know why or what for. Seeing them leaving the house dead shook him, and before he could think to move far enough away, he believes the guard types saw him. Nothing happened at the time, but over the next few weeks, Neil reported he'd seen more of those uniforms around the area he was working in, either acting as if they were checking some area outside the house or engaging in conversation with the regular guards. He also noted that he'd noticed things missing from his house. Nothing of monetary value, but he'd had some personal mementos from Ireland taken from his home. As time moved on, he noticed he was being followed around the city when he wasn't working. Again, some would have played it off as paranoia, but he knew some of them were the same men that he'd seen in those damned uniforms on more than one occasion, though they were seen in regular clothing this time. So he approached Seamus about helping him leave Arkansas for somewhere as far north as possible. He claimed he wanted Seamus's help because he wanted to get out as quickly and as quietly as possible, and he requested that Seamus get him some sort of protection to see him to his destination. Seamus reports that he believes, seriously, that Neil believed he was in serious danger. This was confirmed to him when Seamus came up missing the day they were supposed to meet to discuss what O'Brien had come up for a departure plan. He reports he'd arranged for a couple of Irish bounty hunters he knows to come to town and escort Shaughnessy to Montana, where he'd arranged for him to work as a ranch hand on a ranch owned by a cousin of his. 
Now, some might say Shaughnessy got cold feet and rabbited on his own. O'Brien disagrees and shows the group a couple of Irish trinkets to prove his point. He notes they're from the stash Shaughnessy reported stolen and states they showed up in his office a couple of days after Shaughnessy's disappearance. So whatever is going on at that plantation, he doesn't believe it's good. However, without proof, there's no way he's going to try to push against them. Charlotte James. While she appears to be older, she's actually only 18. She inherited the inn from her mother, who passed away a year ago. She has the look of somebody who's experienced an entire lifetime's worth of strife and struggle and had that all crammed into an 18-year span. She reports that up until about six months ago, men wearing black and red uniforms would rent most of the rooms in her inn. However, six months ago, they all checked out and none of them have checked back in. She heard through the grapevine of business owners in town that Monroe had apparently built a second house on his property. The uniformed men he employed were now living there. Usually that wouldn't be a big deal, but she reports that she'd overheard a number of different conversations when they were staying there that led her to believe they're working personal protection for Monroe. She also reports that based on some of the things she overheard, they're considered to be the troubleshooters for Monroe. As in, if there's trouble, they shoot it. She suggests they speak to Seamus O'Brien as he has a story they're going to want to hear. Mabel Ungar. She dresses as classy as her shop. Having just turned 30, Mabel doesn't really need to own any business or work at all for that matter. She comes from old Arkansas money. But she has a flair for fashion and looking at the dresses she has on display, the group would have to agree. Her stuff looks really good and really expensive. As a member of the Little Rock elite, she has some very interesting insights on all of the movers and shakers of the Little Rock society. Her take on Monroe and the plantation is that she's curious as to how in the world it can continue to rake in the kind of profits it does. She's very aware of the crop issues they've had for the past couple of years, but she also notes that with what they paid the staff, there's no way they ever should have been able to turn a profit. Based on what she knows about how much the workers make, how many workers they have, and how much they can bring in from crops in the average year, they should be breaking even, at best. The fact that Monroe can claim hundreds of thousands of dollars in profits every year means that he's either got another form of income nobody knows about, or he's cooking his books. She leans towards the former, and that's based on her relationship with Monroe's accountant. He doesn't talk business much, but she's had a few opportunities to take a closer look at the books, when Mr. Jennings isn't aware, of course. And she's seen a couple of lines in the books showing Monroe bringing tens of thousands of dollars a month in for things that weren't detailed. Words like services rendered and bonus sales. Whatever it is, she doesn't think it's good. And that is gonna be all the information they're gonna get. However, it should be more than enough for them to figure out two things. Monroe has some very shady things going on at the plantation, and he's got some serious firepower protecting those shady interests. So with the sources out of the way, the group is probably going to want to scope out the plantation before they take any sort of action. They're going to have to decide whether to do it during the day or at night, and there are pros and cons to both. I'll lay it out from the perspective of them doing it during the day. If they do it at night, they obviously don't see as much, and they risk being caught by guards if they get too close. During the day, the group can skirt the plantation and use a spyglass or other sort of magnifying gear to catch a peek at the plantation. Yes, I know there are guards patrolling. The group will need to keep an eye on that and move accordingly. There are trees around the plantation property, but they've been cleared back to 300 yards from the property line. Therefore, if they're going to do it from the trees, they're not going to be able to see nearly as much as if they ride the perimeter. 
so they need to watch the guard patrols and move accordingly. The guards ride in pairs, and they have about a 10-minute gap between them. That being said, you have to take into account the guards will be able to see someone about four minutes away from them. So in reality, the group can only check for about six minutes at a time before they need to move on. And every time they come out to take a look, they need to make a sneak check with a target of eight. So long as they make the check, you can give them an entire chunk of information during their check. If they fail, they get about half the available information from a chunk and they draw the attention of the guards. Use the soldier template and they shoot on sight. Once the guards are alerted, it's on. Every round, two more men enter the fray. They're field workers, so use the prospector template. Every third round, two more guards jump in. Needless to say, if they manage to succeed at all of this, they're gonna to have to run away because if they stand there and continue to fight, eventually some of the uniforms from the main house will come down to fight. When these guys come into play, use the soldier template, but increase the deafness to 3D12. In addition, and you're gonna need the Smith & Robard supplement for this, give each of them Gatling rifles with clockwork magazines, which are presented on page 90. If the players seem to be having a fairly easy go of it, have a couple of the uniforms bring in a steam Gatling gun mounted to the floor of a wagon. The steam Gatling is presented on page 91 of the book. Stats for both of those weapons are on the chart on page 95. If the group gets engaged by the guards and wind up retreating, the guards will follow until the group gets back into town and they won't pursue any farther. However, that's not going to be the end of it and we'll address it in a minute. If they get engaged, don't run, and live, they'll continue to have to fight wave after wave of men until they're basically the last one standing. Let's be honest though, unless your group is full of murder hobos, catch the role-playing history episodes about gaming terms if you don't know what that means, they're probably not going to do that. But we'll address what they would do in that case in a minute as well. In the end, the group will either be able to do a full perimeter recon of the property, or they'll at least get a quick glance. I'll provide blocks of information, and for each successful check, give them one of the blocks. It's up to you to decide which blocks of information you give out. They notice there are way more uniformed men around the man house than they were led to believe. An exact count is difficult, but they make out at least 40 different men that came out of the house to patrol around it from time to time. However, they should assume there are probably more. Around the back of the main house, they see a wagon that appears to have a Gatling gun in it. The field workers seem to chat with the regular patrols that ride around the outer perimeter of the plantation itself. And the conversations seem to be, at a minimum, non-confrontational. One could argue they're darn near pleasant. From watching the workers, it's certainly apparent they enjoy their jobs and are there because they want to be, not because they have to. They're chatting and joking with each other, but also seem to be working at a really good clip. At some point, they can get an eye on one of those guard types around the house, and they realize they've got Gatling rifles. If those guys have that kind of firepower that they're carrying around, what else do they have? It's obvious that the main house is set where it is to have excellent sight lines for 360 degrees. There's no good way to approach this house during the day without being seen, and night probably questionable as well. All right, that's all the information. So with that out of the way, let's address two of the possible outcomes of their recon, as I mentioned a moment ago. If the group has to run away from the engagement, give them the feeling that they got away clean. They might wanna change hotels, just in case, or do whatever they think they need to do to try to keep themselves relatively anonymous. Let them think they've succeeded. You can have them make rolls for disguise or whatever, but don't give them a target number. When they give you the result, when they give you the result, give everyone the exact same answer. You're, you're sure you're good. Or, yeah, you're pretty sure you did it. Some variation on that. Make them believe that they did it. The truth is that they didn't get away. 
Once the sun goes down, a party of the uniformed soldier types equal to the size of the party come into town in regular clothing. They are looking for the group, but are being as subtle and as discreet as possible. When they find the group is up to you, but I'd make it happen at the most inopportune time. And what do I mean by that? For me, it would be if the group is drinking and or gambling, because that would be a point at which they've probably let their guard down a little. Even better, they can be found when they're sleeping. Either way, the bad guys get a free round of actions on the players, unless they're expecting trouble, in which case it's normal initiative, as we call it. The fight will draw in the law, and if the group can smooth talk their way through it, you know what roles to use, target numbers 10. They'll be dealing with cops who aren't fans of Monroe and will help them dispose of the bodies and make everything disappear. That will allow the group to move on and begin their planning for how to get to Monroe. If by chance they get a hold of a member of the guard and want to try to get information out of him, first off, good luck. These guys don't want to talk. But if any member of the group can succeed on a target number 13 role, again, you know which stats to use, they can get any of the information blocks they were unable to get, but they get no new information. If the law shows up and they fail at their roles, they will all go to jail. And depending on how many dead bodies there are, there are going to be a number of murder charges because these cops are fans of Monroe and are going to make Monroe's men's problems go away and your groups get a lot worse. That'll change the way we run this game. Might have to do that as a supplement. I don't know. Okay, so for what happens next, let's fast forward to the planning stages for this deal. Before we do that, let's deal with what happens if the group manages to survive the waves of men who come to attack them. They can choose to head straight to the plantation house, and that would probably be a smart move since they're probably going to want to hit Monroe and get as far away from Little Rock as they can as quickly as possible. The house is huge, it's two stories high, with 10 to 12 rooms on each floor. How you want to arrange them is up to you, but just remember that the kitchen and formal dining room will be on the first floor, and there won't be an indoor bathroom, as indoor plumbing didn't become standard in the U.S. until sometime after the turn of the 20th century. Monroe is on the second floor in a room without windows, with five of his uniformed soldiers guarding him. There'll be another dozen wandering around the house. Let it play out how you will. However, I should also note that Monroe is not your typical NPC, and we're actually going to build him in a minute at the ending of this show. So if this is where your group is, hang on and we'll get to it. If the group actually managed to pull off their recon without any issues, they're in decent shape. They'll have gotten all the available information blocks and will now need to plan their next move. Since they got away clean, they're going to have the time to plan it out. I'd note that since they've seen the kind of firepower that's on the plantation, they're probably going to want some fancy gadgets. If you're not using the Smith & Robards supplement, there are a few items in the player's handbook on pages 170 to 173. Regardless of which source you're using, the group needs two things, money and a location they can order from. Since the showroom is in Salt Lake City and Little Rock doesn't have a distribution center, they'll either have to use an order form and mail off their money with it or telegraph their order to Salt Lake City. Mail will take longer, but it's more reliable than the telegraph. Plus, they'll have to head to the bank in town and arrange for a transfer of funds to the bank in Salt Lake City. It's not really a big deal. It's just a bit of role play. Deadlands Classic uses what they call shipping reliability for their deliveries. For mail, it's 17. For telegraph, it's 15. Once the order has been placed, since Little Rock is a stop on the Black River Rail Line, they should get their order within a week, unless they order something more exotic. Then add a few more days. However, you need to roll a D20, so long as the result is under the reliability number, the item arrives on time. If it falls over the number, something has happened. While the Smith & Robards book has a table it uses, I don't want to do that to the group in this case. In the case of a what they call a malfunction, roll 2d6. It'll take that many more days for the order to arrive, and Smith & Robards may or may not be aware, and therefore may or may not let them know about it. 
that's up to you. Once they're geared up, and of course they can get pretty much anything in the player's guide at one store or another in Little Rock, they just may have to pay more for some of the stuff, that's up to you, they can put their plan in motion. What's the plan? That's up to your group. I'm not going to try to sit here and tell you I know exactly what your group's going to do. Insofar as my group, I'm not even 100% sure what they're going to do. So I don't want to sketch it out here and show my hand. But what I can tell you is what the lay of the land is going to look like, depending on a few things. Should the group think that infiltrating the workers at the plantation is a good idea? I can assure you it is not. The guards know pretty much everyone working there, and there haven't been openings for new workers in months. So if they try that, they're going to be in a firefight within the plantation area itself, which means they'll be surrounded by a lot of angry men with guns. Good luck with that. Also, the old delivery man gig won't work either. Monroe sends his men out to pick things up and nobody in Little Rock dares send him anything at his house. See the infiltration idea for what would happen next. So that leaves the group to try to sneak their way into the compound and get close to Monroe. I basically laid out what it looks like during the day for the recon portion of this build, but we didn't discuss what it looks like at night. Basically cut the number of guards riding the perimeter in half, give them lanterns so they can see, and cut the target number for the group to not be seen in half. For those keeping score at home, that would be a sneak check with a target of four for everybody. When they announce where they're going to enter the compound from, figure out how far you think that's going to be and have the group make an appropriate number of sneak checks. I'd suggest no fewer than four and no more than ten. Failing any of them will have armed men coming down on them. But unlike during the day, the group can run like the wind, regroup, and try again. If that happens, increase the sneak check target by two for each time they have to do it. Once the requisite number of checks has been made, they get close enough to the house to see the two uniformed men standing guard. Doesn't matter what side they come from, there's going to be two guards there. So they're going to want to do this quietly so as to not draw the other six men into this or more from the other house if it gets really bad. This is one of those things you'll want to freestyle or figure out on your own. Again, you know how much combat your group expects and how much they can handle. If they like more and they can handle it, do it. If not, don't. So that's infiltrating the plantation and getting to Ezekiel Monroe, AKA the Muffin Man. I said a few minutes ago that Monroe is not your usual NPC. He's a huckster. And while we could just use the template in the player's handbook, and if you want to do that, go ahead, I'd rather create him myself so I can customize him the way I want him for this game. So, that means it's time to draw 12 cards to build, Mr. Monroe. Here's what my draw looks like. Black Joker, King of Spades, King of Diamonds, Queen of Hearts, Jack of Diamonds, Ten of Clubs, Nine of Spades, Seven of Spades, Six of Diamonds, Five of Spades, Three of Clubs, and Three of Hearts. And yes, I actually shuffled a deck of cards and drew that. Since we get to drop two, the pair of threes go bye-bye. I have to draw another card for the number of dice for that Joker, and I drew a Six of Hearts, which means that Joker is 3d12. We also have a special thing to figure out a bit concerning the Joker, but we'll get to that. So we're going to lay out the traits like this. Cognition, 4d6. Deafness, 3d12. Knowledge, 3d10. Mian, 2d10. Nimbleness, 4d6. Quickness, 2d10. Smarts, 4d10. Spirit, 1d8. Strength, 2d8. And Vigor, 4d8. We've got 26 points to use to fill in our attributes, so we'll do it like this. Three points in Scrutinize, three in Sleight of Hand, four in Academia Occult, four in Hex Slinging, four in Overall, two in Tail Telling, and three in Quick Draw. And I need to point out that you won't find Hex Slinging on your character sheet. I wrote it in under the Knowledge trait, but where you put it isn't that important because Hexes use different traits for different Hexes. 
I just put it there because it made the most sense to me. <sighs> Next up, hindrances and edges. For hindrances, we took Bloodthirsty for two points, Big Britches for two, and Loco for four. Our mental ailment for Loco is split personality. And look, I know that actual split personality and mental health is exceptionally rare, but for the purposes of our story, I'm going to go where so many writers have gone over the years. This explains the info the group got earlier about Monroe acting weird. He literally has two separate personalities. One who is quiet, introverted, and smart as heck. He's the one who made the plantation its fortune. The other personality is the extrovert who makes lousy decisions. Now let's put some edges together to try to make Monroe somewhat redeemable. First off, to make him a huckster, we need to take arcane background, so we'll spend three points. We'll take the voice for a point. If you want to know how cool this can be, this is the power Scott uses in my group to get people to frequently do what he wants them to do. Keen is next for three points. And because we've got a point left and I didn't want to put anything into aptitudes, we took Nerves of Steel for a point. Next, we would usually take the time to put his background together, but since the group will get some of that from the paperwork they'll dig up after dealing with him, we're going to leave that blank for now. That brings us to gear. Normally, we'd be stuck with $250 for gear, but since Monroe owns the plantation and has access to money, we're going to gear him up with some special stuff. He's wearing a bulletproof vest, and the details for that are on page 170 of the Player's Handbook. He's also carrying two Gatling pistols, and they're fully loaded. The stats for that are on page 78 of the Player's Handbook. One big thing to take from this is that any attack against Monroe that hits gets reduced by two die types. Okay, so we've got a few things left to fill in that we're going to fill in here. I mean, if you want to gear him up more, go ahead. If you want to adjust a few things on the stats to make him work for the way you and your group play, then go ahead. I'm setting him up the way my group is going to face him. First things first, if you'll remember, I drew that Joker at the beginning, so I had to draw another card to come up with his background. I drew a six, so he's got a sixth sense. Basically, he gets a chance to roll to anticipate danger. If you don't like that one, Go ahead and choose one from the Marshall's Guide that you feel works best. Finally, we need to flesh out the huckster stuff for Mr. Monroe. After all, he's going to have a hard time casting hexes if we don't know what he's got. We're only giving him four, though one could argue we could give him more. And if you want to do that, do that. He's got Corporeal Touch and Corporeal Twist, which are detailed on page 158 of the Player's Handbook. He's also got Help in Hand, which is on page 159. Finally, and this one's going to be the big one for me, he's got Soul Blast, which is detailed on pages 161 and 162. The final thing I want to remind you of is to make sure you're up to speed on the rules of Hexlingen, and that's the beginning of Chapter 6 in the Player's Handbook. It's not quite as simple as spellcasting in, say, D&D, but once you have the hang of it, it does become pretty easy to do. So, you've got Ezekiel Monroe statted, suited, and booted. Good luck. And that's where we'll stop our creation for this week. Next week, we deal with the aftermath of the group's encounter, as well as detailing what they learned from what they can dig up in his home. We'll also have a campaign recap, as my group will be playing what we just created on Saturday night. And that should get really interesting. As we close the show this week, I want to take a moment to encourage you to subscribe to the Bad GM Productions YouTube channel. We're starting to drop some YouTube exclusives, as well as sharing some of our favorite movie trailers. So check it out, subscribe, and click on the bell for notifications when we drop new stuff. 
And for the record, I've been known to drop stuff at strange times or drop several videos at once after having not dropped anything for weeks at a time. It should also be noted as well that the YouTube channel also holds the entire archives for both role-playing history and Bad GM's campaign build-along. Granted, both shows update one week later than the podcasts do, but hey, I'm trying to run a company here. Speaking of role-playing history, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and we deep dive games, creators, companies, and other topics in the role-playing industry and genre we believe you might find interesting. I mean, we even did an entire episode on dice a while back. Again, that's role-playing history, available wherever you get your podcasts. All of the Deadlands classic materials we reference in this podcast are the copyrighted and trademark property of Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and we use them here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in purchasing these products or any others, check out their website at peginc.com. And um, tell them we sent you. Though they don't pay us for it, darn it. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for a license-free, royalty-free music for your next project. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Bad GM Productions. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube, as we said, Bad GM Productions, and you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week, we cover the aftermath of the Little Rock Expedition. Until then, I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis. I'll see you at the game.